Good morning, church family. How are y'all doing? Everybody doing well? Bless, Masameno. You know, we live in the greatest country in the world. I would say we live in the greatest state in the greatest country in the world. <laughs> I'm proud to be in Texas, and I'm thankful for all that God has done in and through uh, my life and through your life. And what a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping Him this morning. You know, if you have your Bible, you're going to want to open it up to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your notebook and you're taking notes, you want to open that up to a clean page, because uh, we're going to fill it up today. But, um, you know, I've always been amused by oxymorons. You know, those, those words that uh, go, don't really go together, but they make a contradictory statement, and they, they've been linked together. And, uh, you know, I want to give you just a couple of examples of those real quickly. Uh, words like brotherly love. And I had two older brothers, and I don't know that there was, uh, you know, many times a lot of brotherly love, if you will. Uh, or maybe the word jumbo shrimp. I mean, you know, isn't, isn't that what a shrimp is? It's something small. Um, or... When somebody says it's, something's pretty ugly, you know, that's pretty ugly. I mean, it just kind of doesn't go together. Or things like um, rap music. I mean, those, those two terms don't really go together. Um, or what about um, sensitive guy? He's a sensitive guy. You know, it's like, I, I don't know, I don't think those go. Or how about this one? Short sermon. Ah, I thought you'd identify with that. You know, I, as, I, as I read God's word, uh, sometimes we can be perplexed because of the things that Jesus says. And sometimes it seems that he's saying something totally opposite, totally upside down. And I really don't even like the title Sermon on the Mount because it's not very descriptive. You know, um, it would be like me saying my message today is Sermon from the Pulpit. I mean... We get that. I mean, why don't we call it something like a mountain of a sermon? Because that's really what it is. Or, or uh, a sermon of the monarch. Or the kingdom manifesto. Or maybe the portrait of Jesus. Because, you know, when we talk about Jesus' teaching, we need to understand what Jesus' teaching is so that we can live it out. I mean, that's what we're called to follow. He set the standard, he, he blazed the trail, and it's our job to follow him in that, to be a disciple. And so my question today is, how is living as a disciple different from living an ordinary life? How, what's the difference between those two? Between being a disciple of Jesus Christ, who is following him no matter where he is going, but following him versus doing what I want to do and how I want to live my life. See, I believe that it has to do with what I want to call the weather inside. <laughs> Think about this. What is the coldest place you've ever been in your entire life? Don't say the sanctuary at Memorial Baptist Church. <laughs> what is the coldest place that you've ever been in your entire life? I mean, mine was, was elk hunting. I was, I was hunting elk up in Oregon in the Ochico National Forest with my father-in-law. He put me 
in this place, he said, he said uh, find a seat here. We're going we're gonna to go and we're going we're gonna to scare some elk and they'll come right by here. Okay, I was new to this whole elk hunting thing. Kind of snipe hunting, maybe, I don't know. But there I was, I was sitting on this fallen tree in single-digit weather, down in a place so deep that it is the last place on earth that the sun rises. I'm sitting there, it's cold, it's freezing, and this place is nicknamed the bog. And the reason it's nicknamed the bog is because it's damp and cold. But elk go there, evidently, that's what I've been told. I don't ever remember in all of my life being colder than at that moment. But you know, back inside the pickup, back inside the camper, it was warm inside because it was a controlled climate. And this is my point. It's a great example of every believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what the temperature is on the outside. What matters if it's the, the, the controlled climate on the inside. And I believe that's what Jesus is trying to teach us about what it means to be a disciple of his and to, to work and serve in his kingdom. You see, I think that's very important because our passage today starts with what, what we call the Beatitudes. It's not the do attitudes, it's the be attitudes. And I say that because it's who we should be more than what we should do. It should be in our DNA to, to be this. These beatitudes are despised, though, by our present age, by our present society. If you do what the beatitudes say, you're going to be labeled as strange, as weird, as different, as a, a believer, as a Christian. But you see, I believe that it was intended to characterize every disciple of Jesus Christ, not just some spiritual elite. That each one of us should embody these. I mean, we can't pick and choose what we want to fulfill. We do, but we shouldn't be able to. It's kind of a package deal. We, it needs to be all, all one. You see, the word disciple and the word discipline, they come from the same root word. Disciple and discipline. And the word discipline means to do (laughs) what one is supposed to do when one is supposed to do it. So a disciple is one who does what they are supposed to do when he or she is supposed to do it. I think that's important. Because we choose what we want to do. We choose when we're going to do it. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see spiritual disciplines that will actually help shape the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. You remember the the legendary basketball coach, John Wooden. He used to begin uh, each season at UCLA with the basic instructions for his players on how to put their socks on properly. You think, well, how crazy is that? Everybody knows how to put their socks on. Evidently not. Because he would take the time to, to, to uh, go over his, with his athletes how to put their socks on. And his reasoning was that he didn't want his players to have blisters on their feet, keeping them from having their mind 
on what's going on in the court. He wanted their minds to be on basketball and not on blistered feet. See, Jesus gave his disciples some basic instructions about their relationship with God. And he expressed those in some deliberate actions because he wanted their minds on the kingdom of God. So he gives them this basic instruction so that they would be focused on the kingdom of God. I love that. Matthew wrote that Jesus sat down as he began to teach. And Jesus is, is taking the posture of one who is giving an official teaching. I mean, we see that today, you know. Um, it, it used to be that the rabbis would sit down to teach their, their, their disciples. And even at universities and things, we see that someone who is a professor in, 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 in one of those areas usually is, uh, they have an endowed chair. And that is, that is, is showing that that person is, is responsible and is the, the, the teacher in that way and the instructor. And so we see this also, you know, in, in our, on our times. I don't particularly sit down to teach. But Jesus, he sat down as an official way of teaching his disciples. And when Jesus opens his mouth and begins to teach, we need to open our ears and open our hearts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Loving Father, like Samuel, we declare... Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And in our listening, may we get understanding. And in our understanding, may we get wisdom so that we might live. Lord, where you go, we will go. Lord, what we see you doing, we will do. Father, wherever you lead us, we will follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, if you will follow along with me. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand as it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, let your light 
shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, G.K. Chesterton, he describes the kingdom handbook in this way. He says, on the first reading of the Sermon on the Mount, you feel that everything is turned upside down. But the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel that it is impossible. The second time that you, f- you feel that nothing else is possible. I love that. I want to give you today eight qualities, and I know that that sounds like a big number, but I will go through them rather quickly. Eight qualities of the character of a disciple. The word beatitude means blessed. And I'm not talking about just a mere happiness, that you're just uh, uh, happy about a situation, but really blessed is that inner joy that no one can take away from you. It's an inner joy that God gives you, that, that, that because it is rooted in our relationship with God, it cannot be taken away. I love that. No one can steal that joy. It becomes from the Lord. It's part of Him. It's, from, it's rooted in Him. And we may not consider these qualities blessings at first in our natural state. I mean, if you think about these Beatitudes, if they were written by our world today, if the world wrote these, they'd sound more like this. Blessed are the healthy. Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are those who are always tanned. Now, something like that. But this is what I like to call the upside-down kingdom. Because Jesus gives us another way. He shows us exactly. The Beatitudes reverse what we might ordinarily expect to occur. And, And what would these eight qualities look like in the life of a disciple today? What would they look like today? The first one, number one, the poor in spirit are those who are not satisfied with themselves, but are always looking to live like Jesus. You know, Martin Luther, he once said, he said, God created out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing of him. I mean, one of the most freeing experiences in my life is acknowledging my wretched state apart from God. I mean, the good that you see in my life is God in my life. You know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not me that you see. It is God that you see. I, I feel free to tell others, I'm spiritually bankrupt. Don't follow me. Follow God. Follow Jesus Christ. Because apart from Him, I am spiritually bankrupt. I won't make the right decision. But you know, I've heard people say things like, well, well, Christianity is just a crutch. You know, that doesn't bother me when they say that. I don't get offended or defensive when I hear that. Actually, I agree with it. Because I would say that Christianity is my crutch, but it's also my walker and it's also my wheelchair. I would take it a step further because apart from that, I'm not going to make it. 
Apart from what Jesus says, apart from God in my life through Jesus Christ, I'm not going to make it. I am bound for hell apart from Christ. Yeah, put me in the wheelchair, put me in the walker, give me the crutch. Because that's what I need. Because otherwise I'm not going to be able to make it on my own. See, Jim Cimbala, he said it this way. He said, how we walk with the broken speaks louder than how we sit with the great. See, it's when I realize I don't have what it takes to make it. I don't have what it takes to be accepted by God. Not within me. I don't have what it takes to change this thing inside of me. I don't have the love I need. I don't have the strength I need. I don't have the faith I need. And I, after I've calculated everything, I come up with a big zero. A big goose egg. Because apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Because I have nothing, I better look to Him. The poor in spirit are those who are not satisfied with themselves, but they're always seeking to look to live like Jesus. Number two, those who mourn, they are the ones whose sorrow drives them into a deeper loving relationship with God and others. Brothers and sisters, we should mourn the lack of righteousness in ourselves. Oh, we think we're pretty good. We think we got it figured out. We should mourn the lack of righteousness in each one of us. We should also mourn the lack of righteousness in our churches. I can't even get an amen. We should mourn the lack of righteousness in our society. Where is the brokenness? Where is the repentance? Those who mourn are those whose sorrow drives them into a deeper loving relationship with God and others. We should also long for God to get rid of sin and to usher in His perfect justice. You see, to to mourn is to lament that the kingdom has not come and God's will is not yet done. And I think that's where we find ourselves. We need that. Number three, the meek. They've learned that submitting to the will of God is a better way to live with joy. I mean, the word (laughs) means the ability to submit to God's will. I mean, the strongest man is not the one (laughs) who can impose his will upon others. But the strongest man is the one who has the power and willingly surrenders it. That's Jesus. That should be us. Number four, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness have a desire to live a fruitful life in God's kingdom. When was the last time you were really hungry? Maybe thirsty? I mean, you you would almost do anything to get something to eat. You might have even been what we call hangry. You would put everything aside to get something to eat, to get something to drink. They're desperate. You know, you have that top priority of satisfying your hunger or your thirst. And likewise, those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness, put becoming more like Jesus first. It becomes a priority. It's not something we just decide to do later. It's not something we do if we have time. It's something we make a priority in our life that we want to be like Jesus. What does he say the result would be? That they would be satisfied. That they would be satisfied by God in this life and in the next. Number five, a merciful person is ready to help those in trouble, overlooking the little things and forgiving the large things. Do you have any enemies? Do you have someone, is there someone in your life who drives you crazy? Grant them mercy. When others hurt you, will you pray God's blessing over that person? I mean, if God wants to discipline him or or her, he will. But you and I, we can pray a blessing. We can do that even when we don't get along. We can pray a blessing on someone. You won't be merciful to others unless in the core of your being you appreciate the mercy that God has shown to you. And I say that because we all want and demand our rights. But listen, you won't fully understand God's mercy until you realize, till you understand that you deserve nothing. That everything that we receive from God comes to us as a gift. His love, His grace, His mercy, His loving kindness, all of it comes to us as a gift. We did nothing to earn it. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. Six. The pure in heart are people of honesty and integrity. What one sees on the outside is the same as what resides on the inside. You know, in the scriptures, the heart describes the inner person, who a man or woman really is, and that's where purity begins. I mean, if one has internal integrity, it will manifest itself in external integrity. See, and pure hearts are only possible by the cleansing of Jesus Christ. If you desire a clean life, start with a pure heart. Number seven, the peacemaker. The peacemaker is more than a peacekeeper or a peace lover. This means that we're not people pleasers. It means we don't seek peace at any price, but we seek to pursue the path of peace. It's in keeping with God the Father who is called the God of peace six times in the New Testament. And sons and daughters of God are to exude peace. To ooze peace out of your life. Oh, we get anxious about everything, don't we? We get all twisted up about stuff. We need to be peacemakers. If we function as peacemakers, we are called sons of God, daughters of God. Think about this. The phrase sons of God deals with character rather than relationship. You are called 
sons of God as a peacemaker. I love that. Number eight, moving on. To be persecuted because of righteousness means to be hounded or harassed because of living up to God's standards. You know, the reason that I'm going through all this is because we need to hear it. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. We need to embody it. I'm not taking for granted that anyone knows anything in our society today. And as we go through this, I'm trying to benefit our, the body here that each one of you would be a disciple of Jesus in a real, tangible way in our world every day. To be persecuted because of righteousness means to be hounded or harassed because of living up to God's standards. Here's what the opposite of persecuted is. Those who play it safe. Those who compromise. Or who will never take a stand for what is right. See, the physical persecution of Christians is prevalent all over our world. We read about it. We see it. We, we, we know that it's happening. I want to say that social and verbal Persecution or harassment can also be difficult. I mean, think about it. You may lose um, your spouse. You may lose a, a promotion in your job. You may lose your job because of your commitment and conviction and your faith. Persecution. I love what First Peter says about that. Peter, as he writes in uh, Peter, First uh, Peter chapter two, verse nineteen and following, he says. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, you, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you who have been called for this, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. I mean, persecution comes from the activities of the disciplined life. If you live a disciplined life, if you do what you're supposed to do as a follower of Jesus Christ, then you will be persecuted. If you're not being persecuted, well, maybe you need to check. Maybe you're not living the disciplined life. See, these are distinctive qualities and actions. I mean, Jesus taught that his disciples are to expect persecution for living rightly. God only had one son without sin. But he doesn't have any sons without suffering. We all suffer. But you see, the, dis the disciplined life is difficult, but it's blessed. In verses 10 and verse 12, he gives us the result of that disciplined life. Two blessings, if you will. In verse 10, he says, for, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One of the blessings of living that difficult, persecuted life is the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, in verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. <laughs> Don't give up. 
Keep on keeping on. Stick to it. Because your reward in heaven is great. Don't give up now. You know, there was a Peanuts cartoon showed Peppermint Patty. She was talking to uh, Charlie Brown and she said, Guess what, Chuck? Today was the first day of school. Found myself in the principal's office. And it's your fault, Chuck. Chuck's like, It's my fault? Why is it my fault? How come I get blamed for everything? To which she said, You're my friend. Aren't you, Chuck? You should have been a better influence on me. <laughs> it's the first day of school. You know, we should be a good influence on those around us. I mean, if we're living this out, we see our influence here in verses 13 and following. I mean, every disciple, every disciple that calls themselves a Christian, that follows Jesus, should be a good influence on those around them. I mean, he says in verse 13, you are salt. He says in verse 14, you are light. No other options. These are part of your DNA. It's what you are made of. These are distinctive qualities that, that, that are like salt and light. And he tells his disciples, they are like a city on a hill. I love that because what it means is they are occupying a prominent position in the community. A place where people can see them. A place where people can follow them. You see, we have tremendous influence in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our community. We have tremendous influence. And the disciple of Jesus Christ is placed in a prominent and influential position by the will of God. That's what he desires for us, that we would be that person of salt and person of light. And if we're living out these beatitudes, we will be that salt and that light. You see, nations come and nations go. Governments come and go. Organizations come and go. But the disciple is as a light that is set on a hill, a city where people can see. I love that. Salt and light, man, those are powerful metaphors. When it talks about the influence that disciples are to exert on the world around them. A little bit of salt goes a long ways. A little bit of light goes a long ways. How much more if that salt is salty and that light is bright? You know, it's a de declaration of our being. Jesus addressed his disciples and he said, you are salt. You are light. You know, in salt and light, nature and function are the same. They're one. Salt salts because it is salt. And light illuminates because it's light. I mean, salt was valuable for a, as a preservative and as a seasoning on meat. And, and it was in the first century, it was used sometimes to, to pay Roman soldiers. They would take their salary in salt. And, you know, you think about light and, and, and what, that, um, what light does for us. 
I mean, the light was valuable for guiding on a journey or for helping make visible that which was clouded by darkness. I mean, the world, the world is in the dark. The world is in the dark about God. And as Christians, we are to turn the light on. I mean, Christians allow the world to understand just how much God loves them and what Jesus Christ did on his cross for them and what they need to do in order to be restored into a relationship with Almighty God through Jesus. We point to him. Our crucified life that we live points to Jesus. But we've got to be crucified in order for that to happen. I mean, being the light of the world, we carry out the same purpose that Jesus had when he was here. To be the light of the world. To shine light to Jesus and these qualities and actions described by Jesus. They function as a visible display to the influence of salt and light by every disciple. By every one of us. I don't care if you're 80 or 8. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, as someone who follows him, you can be salt and light wherever God places you. And when he says you are salt, you are the salt of the earth. You are meant to live morally pure lives and to do great good deeds to benefit our neighbors and our world. I mean, that's what he says. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I mean, you're the light of the world as you live out this goodness visibly in front of others. Your life is going to point them to Jesus. Probably more of what you do than what you say. But it's going to take both. You're going to need to live the life, walk the walk, but you're also going to need to talk and tell them about what Jesus has done in your life. See, that's really what our world needs. They want to know what their purpose is. They want to find significance in our world. We have to show them what that looks like and how Jesus Christ brings purpose and significance and understanding that, that they can live a life that is real, not a life that is a lie that the world is trying to sell them, but that they can live real before God and before others. What a, what a great testimony you have in being salt and light. I mean, this is the task that we've been left on this earth with to accomplish. You think about this. When the preacher closes his Bible, that means he's almost done. You think about this. When we're in heaven, we will still be able to worship the Lord. When we're in heaven, we will still be able to serve God. 
When we're in heaven, we will still have fellowship with one another. But when we are in heaven, the only thing we cannot do is tell others how to get there. That's our job here. Is to be salt and light so that others will know how to get to Jesus. How to get to God. How to get to heaven. We have all eternity to worship, to serve, and to fellowship. It's not about us fellowshipping. It's about telling them how they can be a part of this. That's what disciples do. See, we are always influencing someone. Either positively or negatively. But people are watching you. I don't have to tell the people in my neighborhood that I pastor this church. They already know. They watch me day in and day out. They know. And you don't have to tell people that you're a Christian either. Because they watch you day in and day out. And they know. As we think about this, you cannot be a disciple if you've never acknowledged Jesus Christ in your life. If you've never come to the point in your life where you've said, you know what, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I need a Savior. I need a Lord. I need someone to connect me back to God. Well, Jesus is the one. And you have to accept Him and His death on the cross for your salvation. Repenting. Repenting. Let's not forget that big word, repent. Because what that means is that means you come clean with God. You, you turn from your ways and you, you make a new start. You, you turn away from, from, from the evil. You turn away from the selfishness. You die to self and you turn toward God and you, you repent of your sin. So folks, that's hard. And the reason we don't do it more is because it's hard. But oh, how we need it. The church. God's people. We need to ask God to forgive us where we failed him. We need to be on our hands and knees asking God to forgive us. It makes us uncomfortable. And the reason that we divert our attention is because we know it's true. But I believe that God wants to do a great work here in your life and in this church. A great revival. But it's going to start when God's people get their hearts right with God. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that you have called us, that you have chosen us. Father, that you have brought us into your kingdom of light. Father, that we are no longer sons and daughters of darkness, but Father, that you have brought us into your marvelous light. You have saved us for all eternity by the death of your son, Jesus, on the cross, 
Father, how you have done that. And, and it is just a wonderful mark of your amazing grace for each one of us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be the disciples, to be the salt and light that you call us to be. Father, I pray that today, in this moment, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, you would draw our hearts to you. Father, that you would show us the sin in our life. The things that keep us from going all in with you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would, Father, that you would crush our spirits. Father, that your conviction would fall over us. God, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us in great power. And Father, that we could not help but to say, yes, Lord, yes. God, that you would wash us clean in the blood of your Lamb. Father, that you would show us what you desire from each one of us. Father, that there would be no, no area of our hearts where there is darkness, but Father, that your light would shine in, revealing, Father, those areas where we need to confess that to you and give it to you, Lord. Whether it's anger, bitterness, selfishness, um, Father, whatever it might be, whether we're harboring a grudge, whether we're doing this or doing that or just unconfessed sin, Father. Drag it to the light so that times of refreshing might come. Lord, it is our joy to call you our Lord, our Master. Father, may we be obedient to all that your Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. God, we love you and we thank you. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this morning, we read God's word, we understand what it says, and the Holy Spirit may be speaking to your heart this morning. You know, God doesn't have any homeless children. He cares for his own. And if you are a believer and you don't have a church home, a church family, then this is a very good one. And I hope that you will come and be a part of the work in the ministry here. You know, I know that some of you have come here for a long time. And you enjoy being fed. You enjoy coming and being a part. But I say it's time for you to become a part of us. Don't be on the outside looking in. Be one of us. Come and be a part of this church family. Maybe you're here and you've never acknowledged Christ in, in, your, in your life. You've never acknowledged what he has done for you. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. If the Holy Spirit draws you in that way, I would love to pray with you about that. So that we can know for sure today that you have Jesus in your heart. Maybe God is leading you in another way. Maybe there's something that is just creating issues in your life. Maybe you're hanging on to something and you just want to give it to him. I invite you to come and pray. Just to give it to him. Not to confess it to me. 
I don't want your junk. I got enough of my own. But I would love to pray with you about it. There's going to be people up here across the front to pray with you. And however God's Spirit is leading you, I want you to come. I want you to respond to it. Would you do that? Would you stand with me?